This is Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 459. In every conversation, there's a need. So the questions that are being asked are, are coming from a place that is deeper than the literal question, right? But there's a need that the person is trying to meet. And, and maybe they're trying to have you meet that need in conversation. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's up, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David, the active listener, Green. What's up, man? How you been? I'm really good. Got a big property under contract and adding to my team. We're doing well. We're hiring and bigger pockets is growing. The real estate market is solid. I think this is like the best time ever to be in real yeah, estate. It is not a bad time to be in real estate. Yeah, we closed down a couple of big mobile home parks recently and we're just about to launch fund number four. So three funds in mm-hmm. the books and a bunch of launch number four. And, you just uh, put the fun in fund. You know that? I put the fun in fund. That should be my nickname. Brandon, the fun and fund turner. I just gave myself one. You like that? Is that a, is that allowable? Yeah, you do that all the time. There's something Can about you give yourself a nickname. That, yeah, only certain kinds of people do it. I mean, it's why everyone calls me Brandon, the funnest guy in the entire world, way better than David Green Turner. That's uh, that's what people call me. So I'm, you know, there is an abnormally large amount of people who say that, and I <laughs> sort of resent it, but it's okay. You earned it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, let's get into today's show. Today's show, uh, we are interviewing an amazing author and uh, just thought leader. Uh, I'm gonna probably butcher the name here. Jimena Venguechea uh, wrote an amazing book. It is called Listen Like You Mean It, and you're gonna learn all about the act of listening. Now, you might be thinking. What do I care about listening? I'm a good listener. I have ears. Well, what today is about is about, about how we can listen better in a conversation so that we can build rapport, so we can increase our negotiation skills, so we can uh, make people like us more, which helps in all areas of business. This is just a really, really important topic that when I, when I heard about this book, I was like, we got to dig in more because this is going to help you in your real estate business or whatever kind of business you're trying to grow right now. It's going to help you. So in the interview, we talk with Jimena about, uh, for example, the three components that you need to bring into every conversation to make it a really good conversation. Uh, I thought that was just like solid gold. Uh, we talk about managing your energy uh, and knowing like when to build your day, uh, like when to do what activities throughout your day. We talk about that. We talk about humility, uh, which is super vital if anybody wants to be successful at anything in life. We talk about tracking progress towards a long goal and a whole lot more. So pay attention for all of that and more coming up here in just a second. But first, let's get to today's quick Quick tip. tip. Here's my quick tip. One of the things I mentioned in today's show is how important it is when you're in a conversation with someone to we talk about how, how asking questions can be so helpful. So here's what I want to challenge everyone with today. Next time you're having a conversation with someone and they are complaining about something in their life, whether it's a business thing, a relationship thing, whatever, make it a goal in that one conversation. It's just a game. We're just playing a little game here. Do not do, do not say anything that is not a question. Only ask questions in that conversation and see what kind of results the person that's complaining comes up with. So that's my quick tip for today is get in a conversation with someone where they're complaining and only ask questions. And you're going to see some remarkable changes in their life, I believe. So check it out. But more on that to come. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means? Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com slash BiggerPockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash BiggerPockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. And now, I think we're ready to jump into this interview with Jimena. Anything you want to add, David, before we jump in? Nope. Let's bring her in. All right. Here we go. All right, Jimena, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Awesome to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let's jump, let's jump in a little bit uh, of your background. Today, we're going to talk a lot about listening and conversations and networking and all that good stuff. Uh, but where did you, I guess, get this fascination or interest? I mean, enough to write a book on the topic, but where, where did that come from? What's your background? Sure. So I think the fascination comes from a sort of larger fascination with people, who they are and what makes them tick. And that's something that I've been exploring in my day job as a user researcher for quite some time. So for those who aren't familiar, user research is what I would call one of the more people-centric roles in the technology industry, where your job is literally to understand users, people, the people behind, you know, the numbers and get a sense of how they use products, um, how they might use your product, what their needs are, their perceptions, their motivations. And so it's a great role for someone who's 
interested in psychology and anthropology and that kind of thing. My background's in comparative literature. Uh, so I have a bunch of degrees that don't really make a ton of sense for the tech world, but <laughs> that was sort of my entry is what can I learn about people in order to help build better products? And the sort of core skill of being a researcher is listening. Um, so that's something that I've been dedicated to for some time now. Okay, very cool. So why of all the books you could write and the topics you could cover, like why did that end up being the thing that you're like, this is this is what I'm going to focus the next few. I mean, David and I have both written books. It's a it's a marathon. It's a tremendous amount of work and effort and time. So why uh, why listening? Yeah, listening felt super important to me in that I had learned these skills through my job of how to ask good questions, how to make space for others to say what they need to say, how to take conversations deeper. And while I was applying that in this traditional UX lab setting, um, it also just became increasingly clear to me that there was so much applicability outside of just the lab. And I started to feel, I remember at a certain point, almost like I had the upper hand, you know, like in a meeting, I could kind of read the room a little bit better. Um, I had a better sense for how to collaborate with people or as a manager, I was more in tune with who might work better together. And the same, you know, started happening in other areas of my life. And the thing that has always compelled me to write and to take on a project that you're going to be focusing on for many, many years is, is there something in here that's useful for other people? Is there something here that I can share, some kind of knowledge that I can share that will be useful? And it felt like listening could be very useful in all of these aspects of our lives. And it's sort of this quiet, sort of hidden talent. I think we tend to spend a lot more time thinking about how we speak, how we show up in conversation. Can we persuade, negotiate, influence, pitch? All of those things are great. But there's also this other side, which is, can we listen and can we understand? And can we take that understanding and form a real connection with someone? And I think right now in this moment, it feels like that connection, that sort of human to human connection is harder and harder to come by for so many reasons, culturally, politically, um, blame social media. Like what you can pick up so many reasons that that's the case. But that to me gave this idea so much more urgency and was really the driving force for continuing to work on it and get it out into the world. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I do feel like Especially, yeah, I, I don't know if it's just in the last year or so since this COVID mess came down, but like my need to establish relationships with people has gotten a lot, or my, I shouldn't say need, my ability to establish relationships has gotten a lot harder, probably just because we're not in person as much with people anymore. Uh, and so everything becomes a Zoom call or a phone conversation. Uh, and I, I don't pick up on as many of the, maybe it's like social cues that you maybe get in, in real life, like you're sitting at a coffee shop with somebody. Uh, and so, again, that's why when when we I heard about this book, I was fascinated by the topic. And I'm like, this is definitely something that if I can get better at listening, at conversations, at interacting, it's going to benefit all areas of my life, especially my real estate. I mean, I run a big real estate business and buy a lot of properties, but so much of that is based upon my ability to build that rapport. So I kind of, I'm not really first question because I've already thrown a few at you, but first question of the topic here, what do people get wrong when it comes to listening? What do you, what do you find is a common like, screw up mistake problem that a lot of people just have and maybe they don't even know they have. Yeah, I think most people most of the time aren't actually listening. 
we think we are. <laughs> That's the sort of number one thing is we think we're listening and, and we're there, you know, we're there enough to not in smile or, you know, respond in some way. So you're not just ignoring the other person per se, but we're not really taking in what the other person is saying. Often we're winding up to respond. So somebody says something and we have an idea that we want to share or a follow-up. And that's what we start thinking about instead of hearing the other person out or we're distracted by our devices. I mean, who hasn't had a day or a moment where that's been the case? You know, so there are lots of things that actually distract us from being present and actually hearing the other person. And I call that surface listening mode. It's sort of like you're you're staying at the surface, you're catching bits and pieces, but you're not catching meaning or emotion, which is where that human connection tends to occur. <laughs> My wife and I were in the kitchen yesterday and she's telling me something. I can't remember what it was. This is probably, this proves the point even more so. <laughs> and she's telling me something important. And as she's talking, I grabbed my phone and I picked it up and I looked at it because something buzzed. And then I opened it and I went to my like Instagram DMs because that's what the thing was. And I started scrolling through the DMs and she's, she just stops talking and she looks at me and she goes, what, what are you doing? Like I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm like, oh, I, I, I was listening and now I can't, I have no idea what she was talking about. So, uh, I know I'm so guilty of this. Uh, and, and the whole idea of trying to think of, oh, I gotta, I, I know what, I know what I want to say next to this thing. So let me just get them to stop talking so I can start talking next. I know I'm very guilty of that as well. David, what I was thinking as you were talking, Himena, was, is it when the speaker isn't meeting my expectations of an appropriate conversation? So what would have triggered Brandon to get on his phone? Was it Heather started talking about something that he's not interested in? Was it a thought went through his head that he subconsciously prioritized over Heather? He thought it was really important was they're a part of him where she gave him a nonverbal cue that, hey, this part isn't important. I'm just talking to myself, but you may have to jump back in. There's something like that programs when we focus on what someone's saying and when we don't. And I'm curious if you can maybe shine a light onto why my attention will sometimes waver. I think you're right in that all of those scenarios you mentioned could have been triggers for, you know, kind of starting to shut down in a conversation inadvertently. And the thing is, there are more of those out there than than we would like to admit. And I think what really helps us is the intentionality that you bring into a conversation of saying, hey, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be present with this person because there's always going to be those, not even just those distractions, but I mean, there's a whole other set of things that can set you off, which are your emotions, like Something was said and it caused an emotional reaction in you. And it doesn't matter whether or not the other person meant it. You're now in this totally different state of mind. So there's always going to be something that can pull you out of this deeper listening mode. And I think what is most helpful is setting that intention up front of, I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to be present. I'm going to be aware of when my thoughts are starting to run the show and just notice that, you know, it's sort of taking a meditative approach of, oh, here's a thought. I want to chime in with this idea. Okay. I'm just going to observe that and let it go and come back to the present or, oh, I want to grab my phone. I don't know why I wanted to grab it, but let's just put that down and come back. Um, because there are so many things that can compete for that deep conversation. How much of that do you think is a byproduct of the digital age we live in where 
we sort of all have ADHD in a sense. We're just used to constant stimulus and having to focus on one person at one time is just a muscle that we haven't worked out in a while. I think that social media, the internet, all of those things have probably exacerbated that challenge of, you know, staying present and um, made the issue worse. But I don't know that I think it's the source or the cause of it. I think we all have this kind of human instinct to want to be seen or heard. And that comes out in different ways in conversation. And sometimes part of how that comes out is wanting to contribute. And that's why we wind up ahead of time. Or, you know, maybe tuning out because a topic isn't interesting to us. That's that's not a social media thing. That's an us thing, right? Of like, we're just not drawn to that. And we, you know, devote our attention elsewhere. But I do think that... Um, the world we live in now has certainly made it so much easier to give in to those, let's say, human weaknesses that we bring into conversation. If I want to get better at listening in conversation with talking to people, where are some of the places to start? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is just bringing that into intentionality we talked about earlier and specifically thinking about three qualities that you can bring into conversation, which is humility, curiosity and empathy. So humility is what is going to help you kind of calm that monologue that might be in your brain of, I know the right answer, or I know, you know, what's going to happen next, or you're wrong, <laughs> right? And those those reactions often stop us from listening because we're sort of on our um, our pedestal and, and we're ready to chime in with the quote unquote right answer. So bringing in humility, bringing in curiosity also. So we were talking about, you know, is the topic something that just made you tune out in conversation? Maybe, but there's always something else that you can get curious about. So there are definitely topics, and I think this is totally fair and normal for everyone to have certain subjects that you're just not as interested in. That's fine. But if somebody you care about is bringing up that conversation topic, can you get curious about that? Well, why do they care so much about this topic? Is there something that I can learn about their interest in it or their motivation for bringing this up, something that I can get curious about. And then the third is empathy. And that's really trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes and understand their experience. It doesn't mean you need to have that experience or share that exact experience, but you're tapping into that emotional side of things and what they're experiencing. And those three qualities, if you can bring them into a conversation, are going to help you go much deeper than you ordinarily would. That's really good. Yeah, I was just thinking about how those, those exactly those three things are what usually it like caused me to do what I did to my wife, right? Like she was probably explaining something because I, I do this all the time. I'm a, I'm a terrible listener, but like, yeah, I'll, I'll immediately want to solve her problem because I, I can solve every problem. So I'm the husband. I got this. So that's my lack of humility. And, uh, you know, the empathy, of course, like I, I tend not to think like, does she want me? I once said somebody, do you want me to fix this or do you want me to feel this? Right. So again, it goes back to, I just want to, I just want to fix this thing. I want to, I want to be able to solve this problem. And as a result, it, it ends up just creating conflict in my, in my relationship there where usually like my wife's not afraid to now just tell me, be like, just stop trying to fix my problem. Just listen to me. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then like, I, like it takes that, but it really takes that intentionality. It takes going like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to focus in on this thing. I'm going to, you know, 
not just shove my ego in the way and, and be able to solve this thing. Is that what you call the listening mindset? I know that there's a chapter in the book called the listening mindset. Is that what that is? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's when you bring those three things in and combine them, that's your listening mindset. And really the sort of foundation for that too is being mindful and being aware of what you're bringing into conversation. You know, one of the ways I see this pop up in our world as real estate agents or loan officers is somebody will make a statement, maybe they're addressing a concern they have, and my staff will answer the specific question they asked, okay? And then the person will ask another question or they'll express another fear, and then they'll just answer that. And we'll get into this game of what I call whack-a-mole where they just keep bringing up new objections and we just keep answering them and hitting these bowls and it never actually goes away. And what I've found is that usually the person asking questions isn't actually asking for that specific problem to get fixed. They're actually, in a sense, what it feels like, at least to me, is they're showing you what's in their heart and they're saying, I'm really scared and I don't know how to how to articulate this on my own. And what we have to do is actually ask them questions. We have to get behind why these bowls keep popping up and it will it'll just frequently come up where one of my staff members will be frustrated and they'll say, well, we keep coming back to the same problem. And I'll say, well, have you actually addressed the, the concern, the nature of the problem? Or are you just answering their questions as if they can uh, fix this themselves? Do you have any advice for those scenarios themselves? Because I know our listeners are going to see this when they find a seller who wants to sell a house but it belonged to their grandmother and they just keep on throwing another wrench in what looks like a good negotiation and you can't quite get to the root of where it's at or other scenarios like that. One thing we don't realize necessarily and what you're pointing to here is that in every conversation, there's a need. So the questions that are being asked are, are coming from a place that is deeper than the literal question, right? But there's a need that the person is trying to meet. And, and maybe they're trying to have you meet that need in conversation. And so they're asking those questions as a way of sort of getting closer to some sort of resolution, to feeling better, to feeling more secure, to feeling less intimidated, whatever that may be. And when you stay at this, you, you take the surface, you, you stay at the literal level of, oh, they asked me X, I'm going to answer Y. You miss the need underneath. And so I think this is where there's two things that I would I would suggest. One is figuring out what your listening mode, your default listening mode is. So this is how you tend to show up in conversation. So Brandon was saying earlier, he tends to show up as a problem solver. He hears everything through the lens of a problem to be solved. That is one of the default listening modes. There are other listening modes. Um, you know, there are people who are natural mediators. They want everybody's voice to be heard. They want to consider things from all angles. So they hear everything through that lens. So the first thing I would say is figuring out what is your listening mode, because you're going to bring that into every conversation and you're going to hear the other person's questions and interpret them through that mode. So figuring out what yours is and then assessing whether that's actually what's called for. So is the problem solving mode right here or is, you know, what I would call like a nurse mode where you're you're more comforting and um, supporting in a different way? Is that the response that's called for? Um, and then the other thing I would say, in addition to figuring out what is that mode and is that mode going to help meet that need in the moment, is figuring out 
how to ask better questions. And so, David, you started talking about this of like, you know, they're asking you questions, but maybe we need to be asking them questions. And I think that's totally right. And there's a few kinds of questions that I think can be helpful. And the first is that most of the questions we ask are often somewhat disconnecting in the sense that we don't realize it, but we're leading somebody towards a certain response. So we might ask a close-ended question, a question they can answer in a yes or no, um, but they tend to kind of hit a certain dead end. And we really want to open it up and ask more open-ended questions. So trying to stay away from questions that start with do, is, or are, like, are you ready to do X, Y, Z? Do you like this, right? That's not going to take you so very far. But if you ask, oh, hey, how do you feel about that? Um, or what do you make of this? Much more open-ended. Yeah, that's really good. The other thing I think can be that can be helpful there is asking what I call encouraging questions. So once you've kind of sort of, you've opened it up and the person has started to let you in, you want to, Keep taking it deeper, generally. Um, And there are questions that are really small. They don't actually sound like questions, but they can be very powerful for helping to continue to open things up so that you get to the root of why do they keep, you know, responding in X, Y, Z way. And that can sound like, say more about that, or tell me more about that, or what else? They're small. (laughs) They don't sound flashy by any means, but you're just giving the other person space to say a little bit more. And my favorite version of this is actually really small. And it's just to say, because. So if the person says, um, you know, I'm worried about such and such a thing, then I would say, because dot, dot, dot. I'm just giving them space to finish that thought instead of saying, well, you don't have to worry about that because, you know, we've got it solved, right? I actually want to know why they're worried about it because maybe my solution isn't going to address their concern. So those are some of the things that I would suggest to kind of get a little bit deeper, get to that need, and then start to respond in a way that that person will really be able to hear you. Yeah, that's really good. I know with my daughter, I'm trying to do more of that because it's easy for me to be like, hey, did you have a good day today? Right. And then, yes. Or did you have fun at that activity? Yes uh, or no. And so she's four years old. So I'm really, I'm I'm trying to shift how I talk to her in terms of like, what was your favorite part about the pony ride? Or how did you feel when you're up on that horse? Like things like that, just get conversation. And she still answers, you know, I don't know all the time. I don't know, I don't know. But it gets her mind working a little bit more. And I find the same is true when I'm doing like real estate transactions in business. Like when I'm talking to a motivated seller, somebody who's like, you know owns a house and they're not sure they want to sell it, I'm talking to them just by me coming in there and telling them what's up. It just it tends to shut down the conversation so much faster than if I just ask them. So, you know, so does, tell me more about that. I like that. I say that a lot. Tell me more about that uh, is is a phrase that I've been trying to use more because yeah, it gets them opening up, gets them talking, and you know, though this goes back to what's his name, Dale Carnegie, is that the guy who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People? Right. So like people love to talk, and so get them talking. They're going to naturally like you more. Uh, I, I want to dig a little bit more on the, on one of those three things, you know, the empathy you talked about, and then you talked about what was the first one? Empathy was the last one. The first one was, I wrote it down here, humility and the middle one, curiosity, right? What can you teach about curiosity? And the reason I asked is because when I think of somebody who's a really good conversationalist, like I think of like Joe Rogan, one of the best conversationalists I know, he's got, you know, the biggest podcast in the world. 
But the reason why he's so good, I think, is because he's so darn curious. Like he could you he could be interviewing somebody about something he could care less about, and he, it's an engaging conversation because he's just curious about it. So how do we develop that, or how do we improve that in our lives? Our curiosity. It's a great question. I think um, you know curiosity comes to us very naturally, especially when we're younger, and then we sort of learn what we're supposed to pay attention to and what we're not and kind of narrow in from there. And certainly adulthood asks you to specialize. And so you become very curious about one or two things and then sort of shut everything else out. But I think part of part of becoming, you know, a more curious person is actually removing the idea that you might be an expert, especially if it's a topic that you know a lot about. It can be really easy to say, I'm good. <laughs> I've got this, you know, and that's also when we wind up winding our own responses up of, oh, here's what I have to say about this. Um, so I think trying to kind of take on that student perspective as opposed to an expert's perspective, or even just saying, I'm an expert, but there's always more, right? Like no expert has ever done learning. There's always more. And so taking that perspective, I think, can be helpful. Um, I think asking the question to yourself of what else, what else can I learn here can also be a, a helpful reminder to tune into, you know, what's happening. And the other thing I would say is I think that sometimes there's this idea that when we meet people, we have to be interesting in order for them to, you know, engage with us in a certain way or you know, make friends or whatever it may be. But actually what research shows is that curiosity, people who demonstrate that they are interested in you, that's what draws people in. So it's not how good is the story you're telling, it's how curious are you about the other person? Because as you mentioned earlier, like people love to talk about themselves. People have things that they want to share. If you can make someone feel like you're interested in them genuinely, not putting on a show, but genuinely because you're asking good questions, they're going to remember you. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Yeah. I, I hear that a lot in terms of like in the, in the real estate space, you know, we often say that people want, or people like to sell to people they like. And so when, if somebody's going to, they have like five different options in front of them, like there's different people talking about buying their property or there are multiple options on a property. Uh, if they like one person more than the others, it gives a huge uh, benefit to that person. And so just by being that, I guess, that curious and interested and asking about their, their reasons on what they're doing. Now, it's not always possible if you're buying like through a real estate agent, you don't always get to actually talk to the seller. Um, but any way that you can try to build that rapport more. It helps. Now, one thing I struggle as an introvert, I'm, I'm very introverted. People are always surprised by that because I got a podcast, but that's why I have a podcast because I don't have to talk to a lot of people at one time. Uh, I just get to record it and I could edit this later. So for those people who are introverted like me, what do you have for tips or encouragement or maybe stuff you've researched in terms of how that I, I can get better at building these relationships and getting people to like me when it's just not natural? I just don't necessarily love doing it. Yeah, I think part of it is practice. And just kind of putting yourself out there bit by bit and trying it out. I think the other part of it is building that self-awareness muscle about yourself of what are the conditions that you need in order to have 
a good deep conversation, which it sounds like you've got some of that already, right? Like it, you already know that maybe a big crowd is not going to help you have a deep and fulfilling conversation. Great starting point, right? Because then you can architect those conversations a little bit differently. But it also is, you know, are you a morning person or a night owl? Are you someone who gets depleted after one deep conversation or can you do, you know, three in a row? How much does context switching affect your ability to be present and empathetic in a conversation? So there's all these these elements that affect how we show up in a conversation. And I think being in tune with that can really help you set yourself up for success or say, hey, this actually isn't a great time. I really value you and I want to have a good conversation here. Can we punt or do this after lunch or, you know, whatever might suit you a little bit better. I noticed that your definition of curiosity actually involved humility. There was, you have to assume you don't know everything and there's still something to learn. It seems like this theme of humility is coming up a lot and that maybe when we're not listening, it's actually involved with ego. Would you mind sharing how you define humility? I think a lot of people assume humility is thinking low of themselves and putting themselves down. It doesn't sound low. That's what you're advocating. Yeah. I think humility is really about being open to learning something from the other person. You know, in, in user research, your job is to get to know another person and learn from them in order to build a better product. And so I would always start my interviews by saying, I'm here to learn from you. And I'm going to be like neutral Switzerland. So anything you say, I'm not going to get offended by it. I'm not going to take it personally. And I would even reassure them and say, hey, I didn't design this thing. I didn't build this thing. So you really can't hurt my feelings. And I think it's about bringing those same qualities into a conversation of, hey, I'm here to learn from you. And I'm not expecting to be right in any way. And creating that sort of open space for someone to be themselves. And it's not that you are disappearing from the conversation by doing that. It's not that, you know, because if you do that, it becomes a monologue, not a dialogue. It's not that you're completely repressing who you are in any way. You're just giving the other person space to be themselves and being willing to learn from that experience rather than judge that experience, for instance, if it's different mm-hmm. from yours. Yeah. I've noticed that's another thing that you you go back to is there's actually a skill that the listener develops to pull out from the person they're listening to more information. It's not as simple as just shut up and listen to them talk. There's actually statements you make that would allow that person to believe that they're not under a threat if they say something that could be perceived wrong, that you're actively saying, well, I didn't design this product. So if you don't like it, it's no skin off my back. I just want to know how you experience it. That allows that person to give you their honest feedback as opposed to if they don't know how you're going to take it, a lot of their mental energy is geared towards how they articulate their thoughts without offending you, which means you're not getting the real raw version of theirs. And I think the reason, I think what you're getting at here is this is so important because this skill is lacking in the world and those that can figure it out sort of have a superpower and advantage over everyone else. Am I close there? Yeah, I think so. I think, and and I think you notice it when somebody brings that into conversation because it's not super common, you notice. And, and I don't know if you've ever had a conversation where you've 
felt like, wow, you instantly got to know someone or you were able to share a part of yourself that maybe you don't tend to bring up until like, you know, friend hangout number five or (laughs) whatever your sort of progression into some sort of intimacy is. Like you notice when somebody's really present, really there, really interested in you and when they're not trying to change your minds. (laughs) And I think that has just such a different tenor, those conversations, and can lead to just much deeper relationships when you experience that. Yeah, I I feel like all of us can like think of like, if I said right now, think of that one friend that you have that like when you're talking with them, there's all in on what you have to say. Like in in my mind, like there's a woman here on Maui named Caroline. Uh, David, you know Caroline, right? Like whenever I'm like, whenever I see her anywhere and talk to her, she's just like, all she cares about in that moment is whatever I'm saying. And she's like fascinated by it. Now, I could be telling, explain the most boring story about my daughter or whatever. And she's just super fascinated by the topic and like in it. And it just makes me feel so good to talk to her because, because she's that way. And it is, it's like a superpower. And so when you get known as somebody who is a just great listener, somebody who just is all in on it. Like I never think one, I've never thought once like, Oh, Caroline just wants, you know, wants my business or she wants me to work with. Like, I don't, I don't know what she wants. There's not like, there's zero agenda there. She just literally is a person who is just really good at, at talking. And my wife's good friends with her too. And like my wife has said the exact same thing. So Caroline, shout out to you for, for being awesome. But yeah, I, I, I want to develop that superpower in myself. And I think like the way you've laid that out, you know, having the curiosity, having the empathy and, and working toward being intentional is really what the key of this is, is just being intentional. I'm going to be a better listener and I'm going to bring that intentionality into every conversation. Is that a good way to kind of sum that up? Yeah. And I would also say, you know, just to kind of set the bar in, 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 in a, at an approachable level, right? You don't have to get it right every time. And, mm-hmm. you know, it is a muscle that isn't flexed all the time. And so it's going to feel awkward in the beginning, but there's lots of little things that you can do along the way to strengthen that muscle. Even little things like as you're, you know, trying to listen with empathy and intention, reflecting back what you've heard and saying, hey, it sounds like such and such, or my understanding is ABC about what you've just said. Those are ways of gut checking that you've really picked up what the person is putting down. And they also have the added effect of giving the other person a chance to say, yes, that's exactly it. Thank you for hearing me. Or actually, you've got it wrong. And let me, you know, kind of correct you and and put you in the right direction again. And so even when, as we're kind of feeling things out and trying things for the first time, there's ways to make progress and there's ways for that space to instantly open up. And, you know, we don't have to be perfect along the way. We can ask for that gut check and it still is going to be really productive. I really like that practical tip. That is something that people can take from the conversation and just say, boom, in my next conversation, that's what I'm going to apply. Do you have any others of maybe the big stuff that you see that like kind of the low hanging fruit that we can all start addressing in certain specific scenarios? One thing to think about too, particularly if you're having a difficult conversation, like something that you know there's some sort of emotional attachment to it, or you know, it might be the topic that's difficult, or it just might be you've sensed or the person has told you they don't, you know, want to go there, or um, there's some sort of, you know, I'm thinking particularly like, oh, I don't want to sell my house because I've got 
my my grandfather is, you know, somehow in the picture. The the thing I would say about difficult conversations is to really set the stage for what's going to happen because those conversations are uncomfortable and we may know that we have no intention of hurting the other person or making them uncomfortable. But I think sometimes just even saying, hey, I want to talk to you about X and I know it might get a little uncomfortable, but please know that when I ask you a question about this topic or when I follow up about something, it's not my intention to push you away or to judge in any way or to change your mind. I'm really trying to understand and it might sting a little bit, but that's where it's coming from. I think that can help (laughs) when you're taking on the sort of naughty topics because you're explicitly saying, hey, this might be uncomfortable and and I don't want to make it uncomfortable, but that's just kind of the reality of talking about this thing. But here's where I'm coming from um, to create a little bit more trust in what could be a, a pretty vulnerable conversation. Yeah, I like that you kind of mentioned it's almost like by labeling it, right? I know you mentioned that in the book. It's one of the parts I read in there about like naming, like psychologists will name things or label it so you can like withdraw from a little bit, right? So if like you're just feeling horrible, if you were like, oh, that's anxiety, you like you label it. That's the thing you can look at from like a from like a step back position. That's kind of what I see you're doing here is you're saying like, I'm going to label this thing as an uncomfortable conversation. Now that conversation is a thing. Now we can have a rational conversation about this thing, but that thing is not me. That thing is not like my feelings, those are separate things. Is that is that how you look at that? Yeah, I think in general, being more explicit than we think is necessary tends to be a, a pretty good rule yeah. of thumb. Um, you know, just going back to thinking about the idea that there are these hidden needs in conversation, they're often hidden because we think we're being explicit about what we need. You know, we think that we're just putting it all out there. And we're really not like we think we're easy to read and we're not. And this happens all the time. And so I think being explicit in, you know, saying, here's what I've heard. Did I get it right? Being explicit in asking, how would you like me to respond if you're not sure? You know, asking things like, would you like me to listen or would you like me to respond? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I have some ideas that I think would be helpful. I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for. Would it be welcome to share some of those ideas? So you're you're kind of feeling it out along the way, and then you're just externalizing your instinct for the other person to say, yes, like advice would be great right now. And then you can fully go into problem solver mode or no, that's actually not, not right, you know. And sometimes people don't know what they need. Often people don't know what they need. And that's when asking those kinds of questions can can help where you say, hey, Um, is it that you'd like, you know, X or Y, like you can give them an either or, are you looking for A or B, give them something to respond to. And then that is what helps them fully step into conversation. It sounds like what you're saying, the, the vision I see in my mind as you're talking is that oftentimes we just want to send advice their way. And maybe that's what they wanted. And in those cases, it's fine. At other times, that's not what they wanted. And then they pull back. And what you're describing is to almost ask permission to build the pathway before you send the advice down it. Are you looking for advice in this scenario is a way of like, can I build a road that I can then put my advice on? 
before you just throw the advice in and then they feel like you didn't listen to anything I said or it doesn't matter what I'm saying. And that is probably the number one mistake that I think I myself make. And Brandon and I are probably of the same cut where we assume the only reason you're talking to us is you want us to solve your problem. That's why you're here. And this is embarrassing to admit in front of everybody. I think the number <laughs> one mistake I make in, in almost every relationship I have is I never think to say, did you just want me to understand what you're going through? And it it it's the easiest thing that solves so many problems. And still, I just fumble that ball every single time. And I have to continually remind myself what you're describing is when I say, do you want me to understand or that must be really hard? And then you see their face just like, oh, yes, that's they get the relief they were looking for is me putting out that pathway and saying is and maybe I didn't even need to send advice, just the pathway, the connection, let all their stuff come to me and they got rid of it. And um, I don't know why that is so hard. It's it's like the easiest solution to so many problems and yet I will just screw it up so often. It's because I have too much ego, isn't it? I'm not humble enough. I think it's it's a very natural response. You know, we don't generally have that much practice just witnessing someone in conversation. We just don't, right? We, we assume that there's something else that's happening and we think, and we have this desire to help or nurture or care for. And sometimes all the other person needs is literally just the space that you give them to express themselves. And, and also it's really hard, right? For someone to come out and say, Hey, you know what I really need from you right now is I need your encouragement or I need your validation. You know, I just need you to say like, yes, you're right. We often don't start conversations like that, but sometimes that is what we need. And so it is kind of just practicing, giving them that space. And I think, you know, a a big part of this too is just tempering any instinct to speak even. Like we tend to think of silence in conversation as a thing to be avoided at all costs because we take it as a sign of, disinterest or boredom, or we've said something stupid, you know? And so we're like, oh, if there's a beaten conversation, let's quickly fill it. I'll chime in, I'll chime in with advice or I'll change the topic. I'll start rambling about myself. I'll end the conversation. But sometimes that silence just means the other person is working their way up to saying more or processing an idea. And so I think some of it is just getting a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable in conversation and sitting in that silence or tempering our own instincts and just giving that person space and asking, creating that path to see where it will go. Yeah, that that's such good advice to keep in mind. It sounds like what you're telling me, if I'm hearing you right, is that many times the person that I'm supposedly listening to is actually feeling me out subconsciously to see, is this a safe path that I can send stuff to? And that the superpower of being able to give people that assured feeling that yes, this is safe, will get them to reveal everything. And then as a byproduct of that, they're gonna like you, they're gonna trust you, they're gonna feel close to you, which is what we were trying to accomplish the whole time that we just wouldn't stop talking about ourselves. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, how they feel. We feel great too, as the listener, right? Because we've had this kind of breakthrough or we now really understand the other person on a different level. And it creates this sort of cycle of goodwill, right? If you feel like you can be safe with me and be yourself, 
then I feel like I get to know you. I can trust you, right? It just it kind of feeds on itself in a really lovely way. You know, we do these uh, mastermind groups out here in, in Maui. I've done a few of them now where we bring out like a bunch of investors and we just have a couple of days to just kind of help each other work their problems. And one of the most impactful moments of those events that we have out there, we do this segment where we where we take everyone and this all I'll give a shout out to my my partner in that Tarl Yarber, who helps me run the masterminds. He, he he started this thing where we get into these groups of like five to six people in, in a group. And then each person gets 10 or 15 minutes to talk about their issue for a little bit. And then everyone else in the group is offering uh, commentary on it. But here's the key to what we do is you are the people listening are not allowed to offer any advice whatsoever. Every single thing has to be a question, no matter what. There's zero advice given. And the irony of that is those are the most impactful moments of I feel like that mastermind even though nobody gave any advice at all. And you you can't cheat with like, have you ever thought of, you know, doing X, Y, Z, which would just be a, you know, cheating. Like it's, just, it's all questions, just question after question after question. And when I think of my performance coach, I have a performance coach named Jason Drees and Jason. So shout out to Jason. And his main job is to ask me questions. So I guess, I guess I'm just pointing those two things out just to showcase what you're saying here is so true that, the people in our lives don't need us to solve their problems as much as they do. Just asking those little questions will help them because they they'll figure out the answer in their own head most of the time. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Pretty good little episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters, and landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with the digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. 
To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. So I do want to move, though, shifting the perspective from the person who's supposed to be listening to what about when when we're in a conversation with someone and they are not listening? You can just tell, like I'm sure all of us have been in that situation. You just tell somebody's not super actively listening or they're not they're not doing a good job. They're focused on something else. You know, they glance out on their phone once in a while, they're, they're, whatever. How can you, can you get them to listen better without being like, you know, slapping them upside the head, be like, moron, pay attention to me. Like any tips there, anything you researched in there? Yeah. So I think of there being a couple of groups when we think of listening. And one is this group of energizers. They make you feel great for all the reasons we talked about because they're deeply listening. And then there's this group that I call the takers. And they're people who take more from you in conversation than they give back. And so they're not great listeners. Um, They maybe spend more of their time talking about themselves than checking in on you. And I think we've all been on the receiving end of that and it doesn't feel great. So the advice that I give is it sort of depends on whether the person in this group is someone that you need in your life (laughs) that is important for your work or some other area or not. I think if it's you know, you've just realized, hey, this friend that you've had just really isn't supportive and and isn't listening in that way. And you've sort of tried to, you know, even out the conversation. I do think there are certain relationships where it's okay to start to distance yourself and just reorient that energy into the relationships that really are nourishing. It's so much easier to work on changing yourself than it is to change other people. So the idea of, you know, saying, hey, I want this person to be a better listener, uh, you know, it's hard, (laughs) right? That work has to kind of come from within. So I think distancing when it's an option worth considering, just also worth considering like overall, what is that balance of takers and energizers in your life and, and making sure that you feel good about that. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, sometimes we can't just say, okay, I don't, I'm not gonna deal with, this person anymore. And I think in that case, just thinking about, you know, how to gracefully exit a conversation or end a conversation, because again, changing people when they don't, you know, aren't ready to be changed or aren't, you know, capable at that moment of doing that can be tricky. So thinking more about, um, you know, when do you need to protect your time and your energy and then finding ways to gracefully exit that conversation. And I think there's, um, you know, there's simple ways of saying, hey, it's been great catching up. I've got to run. You don't need to say why you're exiting the conversation um, can be one technique. I think if you know that it's a sort of repeat offender, maybe someone who you, for professional reasons, meet with regularly, uh, I like to design meetings with some sort of end or 
you know, clear end to them. And that can either mean, you know, taking lunch at a busy restaurant where, you know, tables have to turn over instead of going to the cafe where you can linger for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that way you don't have to be the one to say, Hey, like, you know, I gotta go. Right. It's like there are clear cues built into your environment. So I would say a combination of, you know, the things that you can say to just gracefully end that conversation. And then also architecting things and, you know, telling people up front of, hey, I've only got 20 minutes to chat, but I'm all ears for those 20 minutes, you know, kind of setting those expectations along the way. Yeah, because yeah, because sometimes, especially when it comes to like family or close friends, you just like you can't just be like, hey, I'm never going to talk to you again, you know, sister-in-law or whatever. You're like, you know, you have to have that conversation sometimes. But putting the putting the boundaries, putting a putting it into a I got 20 minutes to talk here. You know, let's let's have a conversation, I think, is a good a good direction to go there. It's so nice when you want to talk to someone and you have a lot to talk about and they say to you, I've got five minutes and it puts you in the driver's seat where you're empowered to decide what's most important to get versus, oh, it's so nice to hear from you. I want to catch up on everything you have going on, which is a welcome invitation to share. And I think people like me, we're just going to say what we have to say. We don't, I don't worry about it too much. And then I assume everyone's like me and many of them are not. They're very worried. I don't want to waste David's time. I know it's valuable. It's actually a sign of respect to me that they're not opening up and telling me things. And I'm on my side thinking, why, why aren't you just telling me what you got going on? Right. But if I take the responsibility on myself to say, Hey, I've got 10 minutes. What's the most important thing we can solve in that? It's a it's a very empowering thing to give to the other person. And if we hadn't had this conversation, he may not. I probably would not have thought about that. That's really good. All right, shifting gears a little bit. This may be related to the book. It may be completely different. But if you were suddenly put in charge of the American school system, let's say you're the secretary of schools or whatever they're called, what like what should be taught? What class would you institute would be taught in every single school? Or what, what, whether it's a full class or whether it's just a, a, a mini one, what would you say is like, this is important. It's not taught in schools. It should be. I think emotional intelligence. It's something that we pick up on where we're intuitively good at, at a young age, but I think we're also taught over the course of our lives to not show as much, you know, put on your poker face or um, if you're down, just like suck it up and keep going on. And those cues get harder and harder to read in other people. Um, And I think they're undervalued because I think when you are able to tune into what's happening for other people, it just opens so many things up and it makes your role in, you know, a relationship much clearer also. Um, So I think we all have it. It just kind of just gets set aside and we don't really nurture it in a way that I think we could. Yeah, that's so... That's so good. And it is related to it, but it's bigger than just the listening thing. It's it's everything, just having that emotional intelligence to be able to know, like, where am I in this situation? Where are they in this situation? Am I reading the situation correctly? Uh, it, it's not, I don't think it's natural for everybody today, like, to just do that. Like, there's so many people that are just struggle with that. So that's a good answer. Good answer. Uh, next one I got for you. Where are we going to go? Hold on. This happened to David earlier. This is the danger of trying to listen better as you forget what you were going to say. <laughs> Our memory muscle is weak because we're bad listeners. So it forgot it in like the three seconds it took. But you, what's funny about that is that we actually tend to remember the things that mm-hmm. are really important. 
So we spend a lot of time like trying to hold on to something in conversation. But most times when you let it go, if it's really important, it'll come back, particularly if there's some sort of emotional emotional connection to it. But we tend to we don't have faith in our memories in that way. Yeah. But the really important stuff does tend to come back. We just often get kind of mired down in the details. I, I want to shift gears away from necessarily the, the the topic at hand, which we're talking about listening, because obviously the, the it's super important topic that is going to benefit all the people listening to the show. Uh, but as the show is about all areas of success and about just growth in general, I want to hit a few other areas that you've been successful in. Uh, one of them is, you know, obviously landing a book deal and writing a book. So the the art of like actually getting, becoming a published author and then the whole practice of writing a book. I'm wondering what, what did you learn through that process? Like what, what surprised you? Uh, what was easy? What was difficult? Let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, before I wrote the book, I, I had done a bunch of writing, but short form. So articles and that kind of thing. And I really had no idea, you know, how hard it would be to write a book. I didn't know what to expect. I sort of thought, okay, um, you know, it's going to be the length of however many articles, right? And it's not like that at all. That's not a comparable um, set of tasks. Uh, And so I think I learned along the way a lot just about how to tell a, a larger story and how do you piece all these little bits together um, and have kind of a through line that connects them all. And I'm grateful for having good editors to help me figure that out. But I think the other thing that I learned was more about myself by the end of it, where I think as I was writing the book, I always had the reader in mind of like, what will be helpful to them? How can they apply this in their, in their everyday lives? And then by the time I finished the book, I realized that this was a book that only I could have written. And that it was actually deeply personal. You know, it's not, um, I'm not sharing necessarily my entire life story in the book, but I'm very much a part of the book. You know, my, my training, my background makes its way in. I also have some illustrations in the book, the sensibility, the things that I care about, um, I think come across pretty clearly and, and are very, you know, very much tied to who I am as a person and, and what I value. And and that was kind of a pleasant surprise. It also, I think most writers probably would agree, it definitely creates a sense of vulnerability because you're like, well, that's me in that book, you know? So we're just going to put it out there. But I think that has been, um, yeah, just a nice, I've had kind of a nice learning experience in terms of some of the technical aspects of, you know, taking on this kind of project And also just some sort of personal reflections, too, of what this has meant for me as an individual. What does your writing process look like? I know every writer is a little bit different. Were you like, I'm going to write this many words every day or was I feel inspired today? I'm going to write, you know, for six hours straight. What did that look like? Yeah. So I had a full time job at the same time. So I didn't really have the luxury of saying I'm just going to sit in front of my computer and write for a full day. So it was more making good use of weekends. Um, I also, you know, there were certain things about myself, like I'm a morning person. I don't have great ideas later in the day. So I would do my writing in the morning and then illustrating or researching in the evenings on the weekends. And then I'd try and get a couple hours in, you know, weeknights. Um, But for me, what was most motivating, and this is going to be really nerdy, but I had a big spreadsheet that had like 
line items. And every time I wrote, I would keep track of like, okay, how many hours did I do spending time on writing or illustrating or researching? That for me is personally motivating because when you are working something on something that you're starting from a blank page and then eventually you're going to have something, but it's kind of a two-year process to have that something, I needed a way of measuring my progress along the way. And so that very unsexy spreadsheet was my way of seeing, okay, I'm making progress. Like I sat down this weekend, I got a draft of this chapter through, I can keep going from there. Um, So I'm definitely not a writer who, you know, just follows their inspiration. (laughs) I'm more of the disciplined, like, okay, we've only got two hours today. Let's make them count. Um, And, you know. Do it again tomorrow. Like well, I got two things to pull out of that that I that I think is fascinating. Number one, your idea of managing energy, knowing like knowing who you are, that self awareness of knowing who you are and where what type of energy is stronger at what part of the day, I think is so important for every entrepreneur, every creative person, every artist, writer, no matter what it is, real estate investor. Because like I just know that I am. Like I'm not good at certain things early in the day, but I am better at them later. And so you recognize it in yourself and you wouldn't accomplish that, which I think is, is, is super good. So like for, for me, for example, I just know that if it gets after about two o'clock, I'm not analyzing that deal. I'm not doing that meeting. I'm not going to call that person. I just don't do it in the afternoon, but I'm really good in the afternoon at making video content. I love getting in front of a camera at, at four in the afternoon. So I just, I recognize that and I lean into that. So I guess first tip for people just pulling out from your, your example there is, take an inventory of your life and figure out where you better at certain things and, and not at others. I hate working out early in the morning. I don't do it. Uh, I just can't get up at six and go run. I've tried many, many, many times. I'm just not that guy, but I can get up and read for two hours in the morning and I'm just on fire. That's when I'm at that moment. So managing your energy at different types of the day, I think is super vital. Uh, and then second part there is tracking your progress on a long goal. You see like writing a book is very much like buying a rental property or flipping a house. Like the work you do today, you're not getting paid next Friday for it. <laughs> like that's the mindset we all got into when we're, we're we're at jobs, right? We get a job, we work, two weeks later, we get paid for it. If we don't work, we don't get paid for it. So that immediate feedback is very vital in most careers. We don't get that when you're doing a long-term investment like a book or a property. And so your advice there of like tracking your progress, today I did this, here's the action step that I took today. And if you went a week and you you couldn't look back and say over the past week, these are my action steps, you're not going to get the results that you want down the road. So when I wrote a book, uh, whenever I write a book, I always track my word count every single day. Like it, like it doesn't even matter unnecessarily how many words I got, though I do set a goal, but just by knowing that I'm taking progress every day, make sure that I'm actually getting closer. So that would be the advice I have for people listening is like, if you're trying to build a real estate empire or you're trying to write a book, you're trying to do anything to do exactly what Jimena just said there, write down your progress, record that in a spreadsheet, get nerdy every single day. Uh, And if you did that, you're like, you're going to see the results that you want long-term. So anyway, just wanted to pull those things out. That's awesome. As Brandon mentions that, I started thinking about that's really a struggle I'm having in my life right now. At one point, I was sort of addicted to working because as a police officer, if I clocked three hours of overtime, that equaled you know, five hours of pay. And there was a very direct correlation between punching the time clock and getting a paycheck and dopamine was present. Every minute I was at work, I got a reward. And then I moved into real estate sales and it was hard because there's not a direct correlation between time spent and money that's made. There's a bit of faith where if I I take these actions, 
I can make this money, but you don't, in the beginning, you're not good at it. And those actions don't result in money. You fumble a couple of deals and then I got good. But what happened is I made the connection again between if I go on a listing presentation, I'm going to get a paycheck. And so the dopamine switched to that activity. And now I've grown into where I'm leading a team and I've taken another step back away from my actions, directly creating revenue. And I'm pouring into people and I have to have a measure of faith that if I do that, that will eventually result in money coming in. But it's like I'm a step removed from the actual direct influence of the whole thing. And so I'm not getting that dopamine hit. And what, as you guys were talking, what I started to realize is you sort of have to, as you grow, like let's say you're learning how to analyze deals, you don't get paid for that. You have to have yeah. faith that this is going to become something that will work for me. And I have to have faith that if I continue to hire people and pour into them and go through the process with that person, that will result in something bigger than what I have now. But it's very hard to get comfortable operating out of that faith when you're used to that direct feedback that you just described. Yeah, and I think part of that is also being strategic about where are you leaning in and where can you afford to lean out? You know, and it's sort of the quantity versus quality. It's not just tracking, you know, all the things that you're doing or or could be doing, but it's being strategic about, okay, now that you're leading a team, what are the things that you don't have to be involved with that they'll actually do a great job of moving that forward? And then what are the things that, you know, that's where your particular expertise comes into play and that's really where you want to lean in. You know, when I was kind of working on my spreadsheet, I could see if I was spending way too much time on illustrating and not enough on moving the chapters forward, or I could see, oh my gosh, you're really overworking an idea because you haven't, you know, switched to a new tab and taken on this other task. So I think part of it is tracking that progress, but also taking that higher level look, which is what you're saying of, hey, where can I spend my time most effectively and how do I prior and then prioritizing those from there. And sometimes it doesn't feel as good as when you could just get this, the safety of that $15 an hour. So I really like that side note. I'm just curious, Himena, when you're releasing a book, do you get that cold pit of fear in your stomach that nobody's going to like it? Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you spend all this time working yeah, on same. it. And same. I think in some ways I had a little bit of, um, I, I had this like great delusion while I was writing it, which was I wasn't thinking about that. You know, I was like, I definitely had moments of doubt while I was working on it for sure. But then ultimately felt like, yeah, okay, I'm good. Like wrote the book, we're, we're good with this. And now as we get closer and closer to people are going to read it, people are going to have opinions. It's sort of like yeah. dawning <laughs> on me, oh my gosh, people are gonna have opinions. <laughs> It's not just my opinion yep. anymore. And that's why that those reviews mean so much to us when people say nice yeah, stuff. I, I feel that every time I've written, what, five, four, four or five now? Yeah, every time I'm like, I don't know how. And in fact, actually, the thing that makes me feel the best about it is not actually the reviews, but when I actually hold the physical book in my hand, I feel a whole lot better because I'm like, okay, it all came. It came but when I'm reading the guy, like the, the edits ahead of time and I'm doing all that, like, the the digital stuff it just it feels like the worst book ever i'm just like this is terrible no one's gonna like this and then i hold the book i'm like all right this is a real book like this this worked out i can hit it on the table and it, it makes a thing so yeah um 
Yeah, funny. Anyway, not for uh, me. I need the good yeah. reviews. I worry, like I still wrote a crappy book, and now it's real crap. It's actually yeah. realistic. <laughs> so, if you're listening to this and you like Humana's book, please go leave her a positive review. It means the world to those of us who are worried and don't want to admit it. Yeah, it does mean a big difference, especially on Amazon. If you get positive reviews, it makes a big difference for authors. So, if you want to help support authors, go leave go leave a review. It helps. All right. Speaking of the book, uh, let's just talk about that for a minute. What's it called? Where do people get it? Yeah, it's called Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. And you can get it anywhere. Books books are sold. Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, your local indie. uh, And they're all linked from my website, which is my first name, lastname.com slash listen like you mean it. Again, I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy of this book because it's one of those things like we try to do here on the weekend episode of the Bigger Pockets podcast is pull out topics uh, with whether it's authors, speakers, like you know, successful CEOs, whatever that we believe is going to benefit you in your entrepreneurial journey as a real estate investor, as a business owner, whatever you're trying to do. We believe these things, especially listening, uh, like you mean it, like. We believe that's going to benefit every area of your life. It's going to make you a well, more well-rounded person and uh, you know successful. So check it out. Pick it up, of course. And we're not quite done, though. We have one more segment of the show. Let's move over to the last part of our show. It's called the Famous Four. This is the part of the show where we ask the same four questions every week to every guest. So we're going to throw them at you right now. Uh, the first question is special just for the weekend episode of the podcast, unlike the real estate episode, which airs on Thursday. The question is, is there a habit or trait that you are currently working on or trying to improve or develop in your own life? Anything you're working on right now? I would say it's probably one familiar to most people, which is just using my phone less. Uh, And specifically, I think what I've realized is just the sort of instinctive pickup. You're not actually doing anything, but you just keep picking it up. That's the part that I really want to cut down on. That's like the equivalent of walking into the kitchen and opening the fridge and you have no idea why you did it, but you just keep doing exactly. it. <laughs> Before we move on there, there's an app called Moment. I'm just going to toss out there. I have no connection to them other than that I use it. It's called M-O-M-E-N-T on your phone. And it just shows you how many times, like how many, how much screen time you have, which is normal. The iPhone can do that as well. But it also talks about how many pickups you have and you can like set some goals and start an actual phone fast. And there's some, uh, there's some cool things there. So definitely check that out. Next question. What is your favorite business book? Ooh, my favorite business book. I really remember liking Rework by Jason Fried, which I read several years oh, ago. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah, just about, you know, the nature of work and approaching um, teams and norms and things like that. Yeah, that was one of my favorites as well. It's been a few years since I read that. I need to pick that back up again. Every book is one of his favorites. <laughs> there are Brandon has a relationship to books, much like those people that go to like the dog pound and every <laughs> dog there, they just want to adopt them all and <laughs> love them. That's yeah. <laughs> That's how he's at at the library. Oh, look at that little one with the dog-eared pages. It just needs a little love. I can save it. <laughs> all right. What about some of your hobbies? I mean, a lot of writing, illustrating, and then just walking. I'm finding that in the pandemic, the simpler, the better. Um, And so I've been enjoying just, you know, taking a hike, stretching my legs. Uh, I definitely get the sort of like, if I don't move (laughs) enough during the day, my body will let me know. So I found that to be helpful and also um, meditative. You know, it helps with the whole phone thing for sure. All right. Last question for me. 
What do you think if you had to if you had to boil it down? What do you think separates successful and we'll say entrepreneurs or business owners or just anybody trying to improve their life? What separates them from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think a mix of self awareness and persi- and uh, persistence. You have to know enough about yourself to know how to make that goal workable for you, and then you got to be willing to keep going when things get tough. I really like that answer. You know, I've heard people say persistence before, and I think it's a it's a it's the right answer. But it's not persistence like no matter what. It's it's combined with self-awareness is the key there. I think those two things together, like that could be a book right there, like how to combine those. It's like rocket fuel or something. Like you combine those two things together and you can accomplish anything. But one without the other, and you're you're not gonna make it. So that's a great answer. Yeah. I wrote I made a video in the sea shed the last time I was in Hawaii that talked about when to quit and when to keep going and how to actually make an objective decision about when persistence is needed versus when you're just banging on a door. Brandon, you got something to say? You just missed an opportunity to, to rhyme when to grit and when to quit. Mm. Oh, well, that's because I don't have your marketing mind. It's No, I stole that from somebody. <laughs> but When to persist and when to quit. Yeah, grit and quit. When, when to grit, when to grit and when to quit. I don't know who said that, but it was good. Anyway, David, get us out of here. You got the final question. All right. Jimena, tell us again about the book and tell us where people can find out more about you. Yeah. So the book is called Listen Like You Mean It. And you can learn more about me and about the book on my website, which is jimenavinguichea.com. I'm on Twitter. If that's your space of choice, I'm on Instagram too. I think I have pretty good SEO, so you'll be able to find me. We'll link to all that in the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 459. I think that is. Yeah. Biggerpockets.com slash show 459. Nine. So you can go there and click the links and we'll go to social media and all that stuff for Jimena. So check it out. Jimena, before David takes us out, I just wanted to say thank you very much for being on here. It was fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you are a great listener and a great talker. So good job. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. This is David Green for Brandon, Dr. Seuss Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose.
BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.